You are listening to the Mom and Dad Podcast. A podcast about balance, growth, and navigating through your 20s and 30s. There's such a disability to people's growth when we worry about what other people think. And it's also the biggest struggle, for me at least, to overcome. And sometimes I still have to overcome it, but oh, it's so liberating to just not care because it doesn't matter. Welcome back to the Mom and Dad Podcast. Welcome. We are talking about fear today, but before we get into that, there is some very important things to discuss. The Bachelorette. Of course. And Justin, you are committed. Whether I like it or not, it's hooked me. And it's going to be on. <laughs> anyway. It's going to be on in our house. Yep. We can't escape it. Yeah, it's been an interesting season. Unprecedented. Yeah, the Bachelor Nation has never seen this before. I don't know how much, at least in the beginning, it was, I don't know, it'd be on, but I wasn't really intrigued. And usually, like in past seasons, I'm like, everyone quiet. Like, I need to see, I need to hear, I need to see, I need to know what's going on. Hmm. I just wasn't that intrigued. And I don't know, maybe, maybe I just like couldn't relate with Claire or I don't know. Well, she kept like, she wasn't really, she kept just canceling everything events and just kind of not showing up. And so it was like the show wasn't really, and everything they did was at the La Quinta. So it's like they can leave the hotel. They're playing like dodgeball in like the gym of the La Quinta, La Quinta Inn. Yeah, so it seems like, like the they COVID were they're moving kind of a damper on their their budget for events. It seems like they were moving around from like the ballroom to the <laughs> gym to the pool to their room. Like it's all in the same area. I mean, they did a good job. Like for being stuck inside a a, a quarantine hotel situation. Yeah, they they kind of just put different walls up so it seemed like they were in other places when they weren't yeah yeah it's it's been really interesting um but i'm really excited to have taisha on Mm -hmm. i think she's gonna be a good bachelorette i was a fan of her on colton season Mm -hmm. and i think that's kind of a debate whether people like her or not but i think people can agree that the season is going a lot better now than from when Claire was there. And I feel bad because, like, Claire is a, a real person, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I feel bad to say, oh, she is the worst bachelorette. But, like. I mean, she wasn't really. It's like she wasn't there to play the game. You mm-hmm. know, she wasn't there for the show. And so everyone was kind of. But here's the thing. You're on the it. show. So you, you got you to gotta follow the rules. Yeah, why accept it? Well, and she said she found love at first sight, so. Yeah. And were we to say she didn't? And here's the thing. It most definitely was planned. Yes. By not her. Well, I don't know. Maybe her or just producers. I wouldn't be surprised if the Bachelor producers are good enough at figuring out what someone likes to put someone. Oh, I think they know. They can. They're probably the best. They're probably. Matching algorithm. Yeah, creators on the planet. They're probably second best to like social media algorithm. 
I'm sure they have it down to a science. Yeah. So maybe they just, they scrolled through applicants until they found one that was a perfect match for her. And normally they don't do perfect matches, but they did it this season because they wanted it to end early and create an unprecedented experience. Well, that's a theory. I think that's the, the truth. <laughs> I would put money on it. Really? No, I'm not a betting man. Okay. I was. I might put money on it. Okay. Yeah, well, on that note, I don't know how you guys are feeling about this season, but I'm, I'm ready to continue watching with Taisha. For the record, I'm not really a Bachelor or Bachelorette fan. I'm just subjected to it because of Ashley. Uh, I disagree. It's hard not to get involved in it, but in case my dad is ever listening to this, I'm not a Bachelor or Bachelorette fan. Of course not. It's, it's thrusted upon me against my will. And then oh I my find, gosh. Anyway, let's just. Okay. And on that note, um, maybe let's get into this podcast. Okay. So let's, we're talking a lot about fear. Perfect segue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we are just doing a 180 right now. <laughs> All over the place. Um, but we're talking about fear. And Justin, do you want to explain a little more about what this podcast is about? Yeah, this one was interesting because, you know, we try to research things and get some sort of an opinion on it before we have the conversation that is then recorded as the podcast. But I feel like this one was, I don't know, it's interesting to to think about fear in the way that we did in the episode. And it was really more of like a productive, how do you reduce fear and reduce the likelihood that it will cause inaction, which I think is, again, I think we always try to look for practical things that will help that can be applied. And I think we achieve that with this. But we don't want to give away the whole episode right now. So let's get into it. Yeah. Okay, so what do you remember as your earliest experience with fear? Like earliest? An early experience with fear. E.T. Really? Yeah, that movie scared me so bad. What about it? Just the alien. He's freaky. He's harmless. He just wants to go home. (laughs) Oh my gosh, thinking about that movie, it's so old. We should watch it again. We'll probably be underwhelmed. But like, I like how I remember it, watching it as a child. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's just like the quality of it is probably so bad. You know, when you yeah. don't remember how bad the quality of movies were when you were a kid and then yeah. you go back. Even like a couple years ago, like Disney yeah. movies, like, wow, like they've really improved. Yeah, they've come a long way. Yeah, for me, it was Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. That scared you? Terrified me. The Oompa Loompas scared me so much, so bad. I don't know why, but huh. they just scared me. I think more than fear. I think those are their songs from that movie is just creepy. What Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? Yeah, I got more of a creepy vibe. Creepy was terrifying. Creepy is terrifying for a little kid. I don't know. I guess it depends on your definition of creepy. Type of fear. I don't know. Other than a childhood fear, what was the first like fear as? Not necessarily an adult, but like post 
post-childhood, pre-adulthood, what was your first fear that you remember? The first one that really comes to mind was going on a, a trip to Lake Shasta with a friend in second grade. Like his family went and it was a big thing where they rented a houseboat and they were all excited. I think I've talked about this, but yeah, I, I, I was, I don't know, I was just terrified of being away from my family and I didn't realize it until I got to California with them and, you know, like 10 hours away and I couldn't do anything about it. And I was just, I don't know, I was terrified. How about you? Um, this isn't, I don't really remember. I'm sure there was things I was scared of in high school or something, but. The first fear, like kind of real fear that I had was um, going on my first backpacking trip. And how old was I? I think I was 18 or 19. Mm -hmm. So like just out of high school, you know, hadn't really done anything. No, actually, I think it was after call. Like I, I, I was back from BYU, Idaho. Mm -hmm. So then I had been away for a little bit, but um. It was just like, th I think the plane ride is what scared me the most. Hmm. I was just worried. It was such a long flight and I had never taken that long of a flight before. Mm -hmm. So I was, just, I was just really nervous about it. And any international flight, I'm just always really nervous because you have to fly over water for so long. Yeah, I just, I remember being scared of that and just like not having been on my own like that before. Yeah. I was with some friends, but it was just a new experience. Yeah. So it's a little scary. That. Yeah. When I went, when I got to my mission in Mexico city, very few people spoke English. And I remember when I first got there, the mission president is kind of the guy that looks over all the missionaries. And I was walking downstairs, like into like the garage area. And he was just pulling in with, they had like a, a mission minivan that he drove. Um, with his wife, and he got out of his car and he walked up to me and said, "Welcome to your new home for the next two years." And I was it, like, that was the moment that it sunk in. I was like, I'm not going to see my family for two years, and I was so, like, from that moment on, I feel like my anxiety just like turned on, and it didn't oh. really turn off until like like came home. Wow. So, when you came home, I feel like you kind of there were there were there after. were a few times where on your mission where I felt like I could relax, but I know ne I never really, but you were saying once you got home, your anxiety stopped. No. Yeah. That didn't stop completely, but it was definitely lessened. I don't know. Cause then when I got home, I had this whole idea that I had to, you know, when you're a missionary, you're taught to set huge goals and have faith. And then you get home and you're like, you have no structure. So you're like, okay, I have to, I have to, keep that same level of intensity and like I have to do something huge with my life. And so that, yeah, in a sense it got worse when I got home, but yeah, there was a lot of fear with that initial, like, I'm not going to see my family for two years. Yeah. That was a terrifying feeling. I could, I could understand that. Yeah. How old are you? 21. I just turned 21. Okay. And I was older. So, I mean, most missionaries, most of my companion missionaries were like 18. And I can imagine like 21, at least you have, a little bit of time outside of high school, but yeah, that's, it was brutal, but you grow really fast. Mm -hmm. So, so how did your view of fear change as you've grown? I think for the longest time I viewed like those first instances of fear, like that second grade trip to Lake Shasta, that sixth grade track season, 
those sort of cemented in my mind the way that I viewed fear as like something to to try and avoid at all costs. And then on my mission was when I started to, I guess, just endure it. Like, okay, I can't, I just have to square up to it because that makes it, that at least makes me feel a little bit better about myself. Like my self-image is better that, you know, I'm just taking it head on, but it still was something that I just saw as like, just terrible feelings all the time, like just anxiety and, um, you know, all of that. And then just recently, I feel like I've been, been able to start reframing it as like that Tim Ferriss quote, like, or it's actually Seneca, the elder, Seneca, the younger, the quote that Tim Ferriss always talks about where your fears are often much worse in imagination than in reality. But I think just in the past, even like a couple years, I feel like I've started to realize that if I just go for it and I almost feel like it's like waves on a beach, like an incoming tide where you try to put yourself out of your comfort zone or you try to just be sort of like at peace with your fear. And, you know, it's like an incoming wave. You make a little progress and then you kind of recede back and you're like, oh, I can never, I can never do that. I can't get out of my comfort zone. And then each time you make a new attempt, it's like the wave gets a little bit further in you make a little more progress and you're like, no, I can't do that. And you back out. I feel like I'm kind of like at like high tide where I'm starting to just like accept. Yeah, I can, I can just make the, the attempt. And if I fail, I'm okay with it. Like it's okay to fail. It's okay to be uncomfortable, which is, I don't know. I've never really been able to sit in that discomfort. And maybe it's just that I'm in less uncomfortable situations than I used to. So I don't know. There's probably a lot of factors to it. I don't know. For me, it it seems like whenever I've been scared to do something, I've, I don't know if I'm like consciously aware that I'm in an uncomfortable place. Like I don't face it. (laughs) I'm kind of just like, well, this sucks, you know, but I do have this perspective now that I've gotten older that it will help me in the long run. Like, for example, starting my Instagram, Hmm. that was something that was extremely uncomfortable Hmm. and I wasn't good at, and I still am not really good at it, but I was really bad. Like back when I first started, how many years was was it like three? Those first photos were, we were just learning how to take photos. Yeah. We were learning how to use a camera and that's true. They were pretty cringy. There, yeah, there was just a lot of embarrassing moments, but I've learned that, okay, I'm going to be, it's scary to put yourself in front of people and to let them watch you fail or succeed. It's, it's really scary to do that mm-hmm. and just put yourself out there. Yeah. But now looking back, I have And it's weird, like, oh, I've grown because I've started social media, but it's just the fact that I've put myself out there like that, and I've grown a stronger self-esteem of, like, I don't really care anymore, you know? Like, I'm just going to grow and get better, and people can watch me do that, Mm -hmm. and they can, I don't know, laugh at me, whatever, and I'll just let them do that, and I'll just do my thing. Yeah. Because I have progressively gotten better and I've learned a lot like on the business end and just all the little things that go in to yeah. social media and like 
trying to pursue that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I know I've it was it was uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but looking back now, I have I have a way better perspective of like, oh, there's so much growth that comes out of being uncomfortable. Yeah. No, that's good. I think I've I think seeing you be willing to kind of put yourself out there has helped me to to want to do it a little more as well. And that's kind of what I feel like the the whole incoming tide thing where just seeing that nothing ha- nothing bad happens when like you try yeah. a new endeavor and then, you know, it, if it doesn't work out the way that you want it, it's like you don't even hear about it. Like people aren't even going to say it to your face, right? Yeah. So, it's just yeah, just being comfortable just doing new things because you want to do new things and you want to try entrepreneurial endeavors or start a podcast for example so yeah i think i think I've, i'm starting to get to that point as well which is cool it's a cool feeling to be like yeah we can try things and we don't have to worry so much about and you know where i think some of it comes from specifically like this type of fear of like like public failure or like embarrassment i think it's like in the classroom where i used to ask a ton of questions when I was in like first grade, I asked a ton of questions. And then by like sixth, fifth or sixth grade, like I didn't ask questions anymore because I didn't want, like I just didn't want any attention on myself as. Or someone to think that's a stupid question. Someone to think it's a stupid question or someone to think that I'm just trying to suck up or trying to be like a know-it-all. And I think that made me very self-conscious of like, oh, well, I better not try too hard or I better not try to stand out because, you know, that I just don't want to be seen as. That person, whatever that person person is. Yeah. So. There's such a disability to people's growth when we worry about what other people think. And it's also the biggest struggle for me, at least, to overcome. And sometimes I still have to overcome it. But, oh, it's so liberating to just not care because it doesn't matter. Other people's opinions of you, even you may think they have one, but they probably, they may not have one, you know, because themselves, themselves and what they're thinking, everyone else is thinking Mm -hmm. of them when in reality, everyone's just thinking of themselves. Yeah. So it's just so liberating to just not care. Yeah. And easier said than done, Yeah. but with practice. So where does fear come from? So in researching this topic of fear and the psychology of fear, I think we've come to the terms that fear comes from not knowing Mm -hmm. and even coming back to caring what people's opinions are of you. Like you don't know what they're thinking. So it's like scary. You go through all of these scenarios in your head of like, oh, they think this about me. They think this about me. And then you start building up all this anxiety. Mm -hmm. You know, but also that can translate in a lot of other things too. Yep. Yeah, and I think it, there's, we'll talk more about this, but the, the difference between like the innate survival response and the sort of imagined fears that we let keep us from doing things. So there's like the fight or flight versus sort of the, the feelings that you were just talking about where it's what, Running are, they, what are people thinking of me? Or, yeah, and it, I think a lot of times it's not even like a, we don't even run the scenarios. We just let, it's like, a, it's like a subconscious drip in the back of our mind where we let our fear, but we never even like bring it to the forefront of our mind and actually like think through it. And I think when we do think through it, that's when we start to realize that some of our fears are not well-founded. 
Like they're, it's not really something to really even be afraid of. Mm-hmm. But if you have sort of this pattern of when you start to feel that discomfort in the back of your mind, like it's your mind starts to project negative feelings as opposed to like like a very clear picture of the consequence. It's just like you start to turn away from that thing be- whenever you start to feel that familiar negative feeling pop up, I feel like. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of power in visualizing your fears, I think. Actually, like thinking through them, which we'll talk more about. So what's a good balance between taking risk and heeding your fears? Yeah, and that's kind of what, what I was just alluding to where I think, again, they're from the talks that we, we listened to. We listened to a, a talk by Tim Ferriss, and we listened to an interview with Alex Honnold, who did the free solo, the climb, the, the, the documentary. And sometimes... It's Wait, what's good. his name? Alex Honnold. Why did my brain translate Han Solo? I don't know. I don't know why that your brain did that. That was weird. Like, wait, is his name Han Solo? Alex Han Solo. That'd be a cool name. Isn't that a Star Wars? Yes. Not Alex, but Han Solo. <laughs> yeah, Han Solo. Yeah. Well, that was Harrison weird. Ford. Okay, continue. Yeah, so, you know, sometimes it's, we need to listen to that adaptive survival response where you know our amygdala is sending out fight or flight signals where we're in a situation where we maybe should pay attention and it might not even be like a life or death situation but it's you know it's a situation where we could put ourselves in maybe not mortal danger but some sort of threat or maybe a person that might be toxic or person that we need to you know be aware of or you know things like that where we should heed those sort of impulses that we get. Um, But I think by and large, when it comes to something that's like a drawn out decision, I think that's when, I don't think there's anything wrong in in taking a, you know, a little while to make decisions just to kind of weed out if it is a found, a well-founded fear or just something that you're, you're concocting to keep yourself from moving forward or doing something uncomfortable. Um, but I think, you know, writing out a pros and cons list or doing some of these exercises that we'll talk about are, is a good way to sort of do your due diligence in deciding whether or not the fear needs to be listened to or not. Think, yeah, because a lot, if we are just disregarding all of our fears, yeah. there could be a lot on the other side of yeah. those fears. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's like a, there's a book called The Speed of Trust um, written by Stephen M. R. Covey. There's a Stephen R. Covey and a Stephen M. R. Covey, which is his son. I think this one's written by Stephen M. R. Covey, if I'm right. But he talks about smart trust, where basically the speed of trust, meaning when there's a high trust culture, like in a family, in an organization, in a government, things happen quickly. And when there's low trust, things happen very slowly. Um, So there's a high cost to having low trust. So he said a good example of that is like pre-9-11, going through an airport was very quick. It was a simple process. Post-9-11, we're in a society of very low trust now. It's a very slow process. So there's a high cost to that. And so he advocates, basically I'm summing up like a, you know, a, 500 page book in a couple sentences but basically what he's saying the the premise of the book is 
focus on trying to give trust and expect trust in your cultures and your dealings with people. And it will help to create a, a more fast flowing, efficient process or family life or, you know, whatever it is. Um, but he also talks about kind of the flip side of that, where you need to use smart trust where you don't just, you know, and it's Hand a hard it balance. Yeah. I, I don't even think I can understand the balance. Yeah. That, that we should probably do an entire episode on that. Just trust. On, on the speed of trust. Cause it's a, it's a really fascinating topic. Um, but there's a ton to it that we don't really have time yeah, to maybe we'll, unpack. We'll, we'll do a podcast about that because yeah. I don't think I know. It's a very, it's a cool topic. It was a, a, a good read. Here's the thing. We also, we have this innate need for certainty. And we're kind of telling, we're kind of saying that with certainty comes less fear. Mm-hmm. But we also need uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah, actually, Tony Robbins, one of his things that I, I have always liked about him is he talks about these six core human needs. And the first two are one is certainty, and then number two is uncertainty. Um, or he says also variety, but uncertainty, variety. So it it's interesting because he's narrowed it down to only six needs and two of those needs are exactly what we're talking about where it's one is like, I need to have certainty. You need to have predictability. I need things to, I need to eliminate surprises or be prepared for, feel prepared for them so that, you know, if they come, then no big deal. And then on the other hand, then if everything starts to become easy and I just, you know, I'm completely prepared for everything that comes my way, then life just gets boring. And it's like, the flavor of life is suddenly everything becomes gray. Um, and so that's when people like switch it up or they go back to school or they, you know, start a business or I feel like that's, that's the time where people do these things. Um, and it's because we need that uncertainty. Like we need to balance both of them for life to be fulfilling. Exciting. Yeah. Exciting. Um, and so it's, it's kind of this balancing act where I've heard it said you should have an 80-20 split, like in your job, for example, of 80% is like in your wheelhouse. Things that you do all the time, you can do them in your sleep, you're just really good at them and you find fulfillment in being good at them and constantly getting better. And then 20% of it should be things that stretch you and things that you're just like, oh man, I'm not good at this, but I want to work on it. And I like that because I feel like there's definitely more um, I've heard it actually in the speed of trust, they described it as the well of talent is always deeper than the well of skill. So your natural strengths, you should always like, yes, you should work on your weaknesses, but I think it's appropriate to have 80% strengths development and 20% stepping out into the uncertain unknown and sort of trying to expand and get better. And I feel like people are on a spectrum mm-hmm. of how much uncertainty they're willing to take. Mm-hmm. Like we're kind of stating that you, it's almost required to have uncertainty, mm-hmm. but you don't have to like your whole life has to just be on this weird path of, I have no <laughs> idea where I'm going. You know, like yeah. it doesn't have to be that way. It could be the tiniest bit of, I'm going to step out of my comfort zone for a second and just grow a little bit Mm 
Mm-hmm. But like the rest of it, I know exactly what I'm doing, you know? Yeah. So you still have that control. Yeah. It kind of depends on your personality of how much control you almost need mm-hmm. to not like go crazy. Yeah. No, that's a good point because I'm, for, for some people, any variance from a routine is like a much bigger step than for other people who they don't even like routines to begin with. Mm-hmm. And so breaking it, you know, yeah, like it's a spectrum out into something. Yeah. So definitely. Yeah. For I, for my own personality, I feel like I'm leaning, I'm coming into more of a scheduled, like structured. Mm-hmm. I would almost say I'm like 50, 50. Oh my gosh, I'm perfect. <laughs> But I kind of feel like I'm right in the middle because I love the uncertainty and I love like doing something new. Uh-huh. But at the same time, like I got to know where certain things are going or, you know, like there's just some things that are almost not negotiable for me. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, I have to know about this, yeah. you know? No, that's, that's fair. Yeah. And as far as I think, Again, it comes back to, you know, the doing the best that you can to prepare and practice almost for the situations that you might likely encounter. That's why I think like, you know, having a 72 hour kit is good or in case there's an emergency or talking with your family about, you know, where do we meet up if there is an emergency and we're separated? Like there, you know, preppers can take things too far, but like in every aspect of your life, kind of what we, we found in, in re- the best way to reduce fear is to have sort of like safe versions, to experience safe, controlled versions of it so that when you get into the real situation, you're more prepared. Yeah, and that's what Han Solo, <laughs> I'm just kidding, what's his name? Alex Hunold. I, Alex Hunold was talking about in his interview. Mm-hmm. Him interview. and I found her name, Armita Golkar. She's a professor of psychology or a doctor of psychology at University of Stockholm or Stockholm University. Yeah. Sweden. So what he was talking about, and it's along these same lines, was when he's climbing this wall and he was practicing for not being harnessed on the final yep. ascend. Mm-hmm. He had every move calculated to a T like he knew exactly and he knew he knew what to do if something went wrong Mm -hmm. like he went through all of the problems and mistakes that could happen and all of his he was saying well basically if I were to miss this hold I would Mm -hmm. fall and hit this rock and die like basically all of his outcomes with that was that he would die yeah but he still went through all of those scenarios so that when he came to that position, he knew exactly what to do. Mm-hmm. It was extremely calculated. Yeah. And he, you know, he climbed it multiple times with a rope so that he could put himself in the situation in like a safe version. And I, yeah, like you said, he, he visualized the negative just as much as he visualized you know, him doing it flawlessly. So that if he encountered that negative situation where his foot did slip or he missed that hold, like it wouldn't, his mind wouldn't, wouldn't lock up. Panic. Wouldn't panic. Yeah. So even negative visualization is good because 
again, he, he kind of related it to, like, if you think of your comfort zone as a bubble, you're just kind of pushing on all the different sides of it until, you know, if you keep pushing long enough, eventually you'll end up with a pretty big bubble and you're prepared for pretty much anything that's going to come your way. If you can a- approach life like that with, you know, anything that you're afraid of, um, you know, in sales, if I role play certain scenarios over and over with my coworkers, then I find I'm much more relaxed in a sales call, for example. So like, you know, in sports, it's practice and, you know, in emergency situations, it's a 72 hour kit and, and a, a plan for how to get back together, you know? So there's any, anything that we're afraid of, that's a really good t- tool for, you know, kind of getting back on track or, or at least facing the future with a little less fear. Yeah, and facing those fears is almost a muscle mm-hmm. that you have to develop. Yeah. Because once you keep working at this fear that you have and you keep calculating it and figuring it out, mm-hmm. sooner or later it's not going to be scary anymore. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, something to remember with that, that uh, Dr. Golkar in the, the interview with Alex Honnold, what she mentioned was, if it's left unchecked and you go too far to the extreme with sort of prepping or preparing or thinking through worst case scenarios, like it can become pathological. And that's when it, you know, it becomes an issue on the other side where that's just as bad, if not worse than not thinking through these things at all. Um, so either side can develop into extremes that are unhealthy. Um, but that something that she noted along that, that I thought was interesting where she said, we think that sort of the innate adaptive survival response that's triggered from within our amygdala, which is like the part of our brain that's the most sort of like animalistic, basically responsible for the fight or the flight, right? Um, that, that impulse. She said, we often think of that being inseparably connected to the feeling of fear. They don't necessarily need to be connected. And this preparation can, even if our fight or flight is triggered, we don't necessarily need to have the uncomfortable feelings of fear if we've prepared like we've been kind of talking about, which I thought was an interesting point. So also in Tim Ferriss's TED Talk, he goes over a process of how to really put your fear or fears under a microscope. So I'm going to try and explain this process. and. I'm also going to post like the actual photos that he displayed on the TED Talk on our Instagram. So if you want to see a visualization of this, it'll be on our Instagram. I'm going to do my best to explain it. First, you define your fear. What is the fear that you have? Write it out in a sentence. And then in the first column, you are going to write down 10 to 20 things, like the worst possible things or just the worst things that could come from this fear. So 10 to 20 things. And then in the next column, in the second column, you're going to write to each of those things that could go wrong. You're going to write how you can prevent it from happening or decreasing the likelihood of it happening. In the third column, this is going to be a repair column. So if that thing does happen, how are you going to fix it? So you have your preventions, and then you have, if it does happen, how do you repair it? So that's page one. And then essentially you move to page two, 
which is simply asking yourself the question, what might the benefits be of an attempt or a partial success? So if you attempt to overcome this fear and you are only partially successful, even so, what might the benefits of that partial success be? And then the last page is what is the cost of inaction? And this is really, really interesting um, because Tim Ferriss talks in, in the TED Talk, he talked about human beings are really, really good at imagining up all of the consequences if they, if they leap, you know, if they take the, the leap of faith. Um, but he said what we're not good at is calculating or envisioning the cost of inaction or not taking that chance uh, or not overcoming that fear. And so basically this section is designed to, he said it's probably the most important step where you, you ask yourself, what's the cost of inaction over six months, one year, or three years? He says any, anything longer than three years gets too long. Um, and so if you avoid this action or otherwise others like it, you know, what might your life look like? And then put a ton of detail into that, again, in the next six months, one year, or three years. And he, he links a, a lot of interesting outcomes to when he's done this process, which he calls fear setting, kind of like goal setting, um, and how he can link every major win that he's ever had um, to you know, overcoming these actions. So that's it. That's fear setting, which I think is a, and again, kind of coming back to the, the quote from Seneca the Younger that Tim Ferriss also noted, that we suffer more often in imagination than in reality. And I think that this exercise is really, really beneficial for getting our the things that we're afraid of that we haven't quite defined that are in the back of our mind just causing that that feeling, getting them out in the open so we can really put them under a microscope. And one thing that he said was, you know, some of your fears after you do this, you realize that some of your fears are very well founded. And so it's not specifically designed to just make you overcome any fear that you have, but sometimes it's, it'll help you to realize, okay, yeah, maybe that fear is for a good reason and I shouldn't take this risk or I shouldn't do this, this thing. Um, but he said, you shouldn't conclude that until you've done this process because it'll help you to put your fear under a microscope, which I thought was cool. And I don't think you'll really understand if your fear is something that's just holding you back or if it's something that's legitimate until you clarify what it is and until you dissect it. Mm-hmm. Like the only real way to eliminate fear um, is with certainty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think over and over we've kind of touched on that point and I think that's the main takeaway is you know, that if you want to overcome your fears, define them and then become as prepared as possible to overcome them. And that reminds me of another quote that I heard from uh, Jordan Peterson, where he, he mentioned that from a psychological standpoint, when you are, try to prepare to overcome your fears instead of letting them, you know, just like come upon you and, and, and letting life you know, hit you and just take you, you know, take you whichever way it wants to go. He says the difference in the, the centers of the brain that are activated when you do that is if you're just letting life hit you as it comes and you're just being afraid all, all of the time, um, you're essentially your fight or flight or your amygdala is the only thing that's operating. So you're constantly in a state of 
of fight or flight. Um, but he said when you turn it around and you start to try and prepare for overcoming these things, you're engaging a whole different center of your brain, so your frontal lobe, um, which is it, it is basically the, the part of the brain that works with problem solving. And so it's, it's, it's reframing the way that you look at fear as something to try and figure out or something to try and overcome. And that just helps you to look at life or just be a lot more brave about life. And so he said that the, the difference between people that overcome their fears and that don't is not necessarily that, you know, people become less afraid. They just become more brave, which I thought was a really cool point as well. That kind of, I guess, summarize everything that we've been talking about up until now. Yeah, I think we will end on that note. Mm-hmm. But we want to extend another challenge to you guys. And I think you might know what that challenge is. <laughs> so we want you to go through Tim Ferriss's fear setting process. So we want you to choose a fear that has just been weighing on you and then go through that whole entire process. And if you forgot how it goes, we will have it on our Instagram. But yeah, that is the challenge that we will give to you. Yeah. And on that note, we will... See you guys next time.